Let us pray together. God of all mercy, we come here today with our ears open, our minds open, and our hearts open to hear what you have to say to us. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, and let the people say, Amen. For the past several weeks, we have been digging into the parables of Jesus as reported in the Gospel of Luke. And parables, I want to remind us, are not designed to give us clear, pithy, easy-to-follow instructions on how to live a good life. They are stories or metaphors designed to tease our moral imaginations, to make us scratch our heads and think about what Jesus really means. But on first reading, this parable seems pretty clear. Don't be a sanctimonious blowhard. Show some humility. Be aware of your own faults. This is what God wants to see. Okay, maybe. But let's dig into it for a few minutes. As is often the case with anything from Scripture it and these ancient texts, it's good to know a little bit more about the context. So two people go to the temple to pray. Now, the temple of Jerusalem was a grand and impressive place. It was big, and it had rules. The people believed that it was where God lived, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. The temple was the place where you had to earn every inch of God's favor. And regardless of your lot in life, whether you were clergy or a day laborer, a parent, a child, a teacher, a janitor, you knew where you stood in the eyes of God in that big, impressive place. And there's nothing strange about two people going to the temple to pray, especially that one of them is a Pharisee. Whenever we see Pharisees in the gospel texts, we know that the gospel writers want us to see them as the bad guys, uptight, rule-bound, inflexible, self-righteous, judgmental, always calling Jesus out for breaking the rules. We tend to lump them together with the Puritans from our own national history. We see them bound by their own ideological and theological straitjackets. If someone says you're puritanical or Pharisaic, it is not a compliment. It means you're a killjoy. You're an imperious, morally preening jerk always crashing the gospel party of Jesus and the love he's trying to spread. We don't want them around, like a skunk at a garden party. In truth, the Pharisaic way of life was practiced by a relatively modest group of men and women. They really didn't have much political power. They were favored by the people because they took the Jewish tradition and the Torah seriously. And they tried to interpret and live it in ways that touched daily life, in daily ways. They taught people to regard the gathering around the household dinner table as a community of worship, much like we've tried to do not only on Communion Sundays, but in our dinner church in the parlor in Lent. When they handled food and dishes, they considered these sacred religious activities. 
much like the way our Buddhist sisters and brothers tell us to use each moment of daily life as a sacred moment, a moment of attention, of enlightenment. And after the Roman Empire destroyed the temple and violently destroyed and disrupted Jewish life in Palestine, the Pharisaic tradition of teaching and living actually helped a lot of people survive spiritually. Now, Jesus' listeners would have expected the Pharisee in the temple to be a careful observer of the law, in keeping with their generally high view of the Pharisaic movement. In fact, the prayer that he's praying, I thank you, God, may have been based on some sort of standard prayer, maybe much like the way we say the Lord's Prayer, or as a Roman Catholic might say, the Hail Mary. By contrast, Jesus' listeners would not have expected a tax collector to go to the temple at all. They would have been shocked that he prays at all. Tax collecting was a forbidden occupation for Jews. Tax collectors were ritually impure, and they were considered dishonest. And in a country exploited through widespread taxation by the empire, tax collectors were highly unpopular. The paradox in this parable is in the fact that someone viewed so negatively by the established religion and the people would be the one that Jesus justifies in his telling of this parable. That he would be accepted by God in the temple for his prayer is shocking. The other half of the paradox is that someone viewed so positively by the people, the Pharisee, should behave in this blatantly self-righteous manner. It's hard for me reading this text in the United States in 2019 not to think about the political and cultural divisions pounding in our heads. As politicians and the media convince us that we are backed further and further into our ideological corners, it's easy to see all of us as either the Pharisee or the tax collector, as either good folks and bad folks, depending on which part of the aisle you sit and your point of view. I was struck that in a speech last week, former Secretary of Defense General Jim Mattis observed, we have scorched our opponents with language that precludes compromise, and we have brushed aside the possibility that the person with whom we disagree might actually sometimes be right. Brushed aside the possibility that the person with whom we disagree, that we actually have preconceived notions about, might actually be right. You can see how we might do this in our prayer life or in the quiet corners of our mind. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I have a good liberal arts education. I've become enlightened to the injustices and the inequities of the world. I work hard for causes of social justice. I give a tenth of my income to help these causes. I work in a helping profession. I drive an electric car. I use solar panels, I buy organic, (laughs) and standing off is a Wall Street raider or perhaps a member of the National Rifle Association beating his breast, his head bowed down in prayer, tears streaming down his cheeks and saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this one went home justified rather than the other. It might offend some of us, and Jesus is meant to offend us. He wants to shake us up. He wants us to do a little self-examination. 
You see, the parable here points out the difference between righteousness and self-righteousness. Righteousness is seeking to go after the things God values. Historically, in the ancient texts, righteousness has to do with being upright, virtuous, keeping the commands of God, thinking, feeling, acting in a way that is wholly conformed to the will of God. And in our theology, the only person who ever really did that was Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus. It is seeking the things that God seeks, and any of us who've tried to do it know how elusive it can be, how much we can get tripped up in the process by our own selves. Self-righteousness, on the other hand, is the conviction that we actually are following the will of God, that we actually got it right. And usually that's the moment where we got it wrong. I'm a little nervous about this next part, so I invite your prayers. One of my favorite prophets of modern culture is the Indian-American comedian Aziz Ansari who does not hesitate to call out issues of racism in his comedy routines and his TV shows. Now, some of you may also know that he became embroiled in a a controversy in January of 2018 at the height of the Me Too movement. A woman anonymously reported how he had treated her very badly on a date. And not surprisingly, in our media-saturated culture, there were varying opinions about his culpability and about whether what he had done was actually sexual harassment. This summer, he had a comedy special come out on Netflix, and it's the first time he addressed what happened, expressing his own contrition, his shame, his confusion, and the effect that the whole incident had on him. And as usual in this special, he also talks a lot about social issues and how they play out in our national discussion, particularly on social media. He talks about people's attempts to out-woke each other on social media. How many of you here are familiar with the term woke? Oh, what? Okay. So woke is a sort of slang term for enlightened or awakened, having your eyes opened about social justice, particularly issues of racial injustice. And he says that he notices that some people are trying to show how woke they are, that their eyebrows just keep going higher and higher so that they no longer have foreheads because they are so awake to all of the injustices in the world and they need to let other people know about it. As a minority himself, he finds a lot of the wokeness, as he puts it, in white people, adorable. In talking specifically about racism, he puts it this way. Racist people are usually very brief. Newly woke white people are exhausting citing articles, context, regurgitating ideas they read in think pieces. He says, quite prophetically, things don't just become racist when white people figure them out. He also says, white folks, I've been observing you, and you are trying hard to be nice to minorities in a way I've never seen before, putting in the time, putting in the effort, getting out there, watching crazy rich Asians, I know there's some people who are not trying at all, he says, and some people going a bit aggressively in the other direction. But overall, he'd say that this edition of white people is trying the hardest, and he thinks it's cool, and he appreciates it. But sometimes he's a little suspicious. Sometimes he thinks people are playing some game where they're tallying up points for doing nice stuff. 
There's some sort of secret progressive candy crush we don't know about. Okay, let's all tally up our scores. What did everyone do for equality today? Well, one person puts out on their tweet, I told one of my African-American friends that I thought Black Panther should have won Best Picture. Then I tweeted out some support for this new documentary by a lesbian filmmaker. And then I Instagram a little love for political activist and NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick. And then I realized I still needed some more points. So I wrote a lengthy Instagram account, a post calling myself out for white privilege based on something I did in 2015. Bing, 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 telling what he's won. Well, Brian's won a bunch of Instagram likes from a bunch of, and Aziz points out, white people playing the same game. But it's not just about racism. It's easy to do this as we seek to confront a multitude of bigotry and social ills in our society. And it's hard work. And it requires some humility that Jesus is talking about and some clear intentionality. Aziz goes on, and I'm cleaning up his language significantly for the sake of our temple. He says, look, we're all messed up people, okay? We have our blind spots, and we become aware, and we slowly get better. We're all on a journey, and if you're sitting there like, oh, I'm not messed up, I'm aware of all the marginalized folks, you're extra messed up, okay? Because you're arrogant, and you need to have some humility. He then goes on to say something we should all think about. Because he says, don't you realize in 50 years we're all going to look back and feel like complete jerks? Like, isn't that the dream in a way that 50 years from now we'll look back and we can't even justify ourselves to our own grandkids? We're just sitting there like, uh, yeah, I don't know what was going on then. Um, there were just a lot of homeless people everywhere. No one seemed to care. And uh, you kind of avoid eye contact, walk around them, hope it wasn't one of the ones who'd chase you down. And every now and then they'd have their cups out and you'd open up your wallet and you'd be, oh, sorry, all I got are some 20s. And then you'd hop on one of those weird scooters and get the hell out of there. It's a weird time, 2019, he would say. We put lots of people in jail, too many people, a lot of them just for having a little bit of weed. And then we made weed legal and we just left them in there. I don't know, doesn't it seem like we could have made a couple of calls? Now, I'm grateful that we as a congregation have begun to try to figure out what we can do to increase our diversity, our equity, equity and inclusivity in all aspects of our church's life. Yesterday at our leadership retreat, we had a mission statement for this task force that's starting up. And I believe in doing that, we acknowledge that all of us, all of us here are made in the image of the divine, that we are all beloved children of God, that we are worthy of respect and dignity, and that in our attempts to seek after God's righteousness, we work it out with humility, all of us called to examine our shortcomings and blind spots. Eventually, in this Netflix special, Aziz ends up saying that the most important thing is for us to have real, authentic relationships with one another to truly value the time we have in one another's presence. And I would add, that's a gift from God. As we discussed this parable in our worship meeting earlier this week, Amy pointed out something similar. She said, the Pharisee in this parable is doing comparison. He's seeking self-assurance by comparing himself to other people. 
The tax collector, on the other hand, is actively trying to build an authentic relationship with God, to be honest about himself in the presence of his creator. That, my friends, is why the prayer of confession and the words of assurance are the most important thing I believe we do every week, admitting the ways we mess up, asking for help, being assured that regardless we are still good and beautiful children of God that, and we are resolving to keep striving forward amid our perfect imperfections. It means being willing to challenge actively our assumptions about rightness and wrongness, that when we step into the temple of God, whether in this neo-Gothic sanctuary or out under the great dome of God's big blue sky, we are equal in God's sight. All of us with a mix of virtue and error of saintliness and messed upness. And the good news is that in spite of all that, we are all entitled to the grace of God. It's poured out for every one of us. And by regular acts of confession and forgiveness to God and to ourselves, we inch along trying to live more and more closely to the righteousness of God, recognizing when we get tripped up by our own self-righteousness and certainly having the courage to call out injustice in the world around us, but most importantly in ourselves. Having the courage, the grace, not by comparing ourselves to others or backing ourselves more deeply into ideological corners, but recognizing the common lot we have in our own God-given humanity, seeking to value the things that God values, and remembering that there's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea, that the love of God is broader than the measure of our minds, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. May it be so with us on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.